I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's how the fourth and final section of Romans opens up. In chapter 12, the will of God, Paul talks about. As we present our bodies to God, as our minds are renewed in verse 2, we might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. You might say, then, that this section is how God wants us to live as Christians in a very, very practical manner on this earth. We've covered several sections. We've covered it generally, the first two verses of chapter 12. And from that point on, Paul gets specific how God wants us to live in relationship to the body of Christ, with the gifts that we have, how we're to serve one another, how we're to love the family of God, which may sound easy, but it's not always that easy. Then how we're to love enemies, which kind of goes several steps beyond loving those that love us, but loving those who are antagonistic against us. Then beginning in chapter 13, as we saw last week, in fact, we covered half the chapter last week, and by God's great grace, we may finish this chapter tonight, but it's how Christians relate to the state, the government, the payment of taxes, customs, and now we deal with our relationship to citizens within that state system. How we're to deal with our brother, our neighbor as well, Christian or non-Christian. And it begins by saying, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. The first part of that verse, verse 8, talks about what we owe people. Not what we owe the government. He's already talked about taxes in the previous verses. But now, paying debts to individuals, paying debts to agencies, paying debts to those citizens within the state, businesses, etc. Earl Wilson once wrote, If you think nobody cares if you're alive or not, try missing your car payment a couple times. When it comes to owing people, they'll remind you that you're alive and well. And if you're alive, they'll want you to pay the debts. Uh, there was this magazine cartoon that featured a middle-aged woman speaking to her boss and she said, I've decided to simplify my life. Would you just send my paycheck to Visa? This lady must have owed a lot. So just simplify it. Don't even give me the paycheck. I just owe so much. Give it to Visa. Beginning in verse 8, we have the debt that can be fully paid versus the debt that can never be fully paid, which is love. And then it describes that, our relationship to others. Oh, to no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, once again, he opens up with our relationship to citizens within the state, our neighbors, people that live around us. And he talks about debt, debt that can be fully paid. It's a very simple thing. Oh, no one, anything. Now, we've already covered a lot of territory in Romans, and we remember that Paul said there were debts that we have, and he's referred to them already. In fact, he said in verse 14 of chapter 1, Romans 1.14, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, and I am ready to preach the gospel. So we owe a debt, in Paul's words, to the world that has never heard the gospel. We owe it to them so they could hear it at least once. That's why we try to get the gospel out into so many places that have never heard it, partnering with missions agencies. Because, as Paul said, I owe a debt to the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, and the unwise. So that's one debt that Paul said even he had. Then in Romans 8, verse 12, he said, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But he goes on to say, 
rather to the Holy Spirit to live a holy and godly life. So we don't owe the flesh, the old nature, anything, but we do owe a debt in a sense, not for salvation, but because we have been bought to the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ. And then, as we read last week, verse 7 of chapter 13, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs, etc. So there are spiritual debts and there are monetary debts. There are spiritual debts that we owe the non-believing world. Spiritual debts we owe the Holy Spirit to live a godly, holy life. There are then monetary debts that we owe the government, taxes, custom, etc. And then it says, owe no one anything. There are debts that we owe people when it comes to payments to be made. Now, is this a contradiction? If Paul said, I'm a debtor, pay your taxes, but then he says, don't owe anybody anything, is this a contradiction? No, it's not. Because in the original language, it's in the present tense. It's a continual thing. It would be better rendered, do not keep on owing anyone anything. Do not keep on owing. The idea is this. When your payment comes due, pay up. That's what it means. Don't keep it going. Pay it when the payment comes due. If we fail to meet our financial obligations, says Paul, then we're breaking this tenet of Scripture. You have debts? Pay for them. Now, some have twisted, I found out, probably in the early church, and that's why Paul had to write this. It is thought that some had twisted the Lord's Prayer. Imagine that. To make it mean something other than Jesus originally intended it to mean. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. It is thought that some took that to mean financial debts and that all you need to do is pray that prayer and you're free from your financial burdens. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Well, I overcharged on my visa, Lord, this week, but forgive us our debts. Glad to get that over with. Well, Paul makes it clear. Pay what you owe. Don't keep on owing that debt. Now, we need to clarify this because there is a mistaken notion that if you are in debt for any length of time under any circumstances, i.e. borrowing money or loaning money to people, whatever, that it's wrong. Well, that's a false assumption because the scripture makes it clear that the proper use of credit is not prohibited, whether it means renting or buying a home or making installments on something. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 22, it says, quote, If you lend money to a fellow Hebrew in need. See, it presupposes there's going to be a system of borrowing and lending. If you loan it to somebody, to a fellow Hebrew in need, do not be like a money lender charging interest. That's what was prohibited, was charging exorbitant interest to the destitute and the poor as a means of control. That's what the Bible calls, by the way, usury. That's where you're trying to control a person's life. You've got them by the throat because of the debt. And so the Old Testament was this. If somebody's poor, somebody has a hard time paying, don't charge them interest. If they're destitute, if you do that, it's usury. That is what is prohibited. So borrowing and lending is not prohibited. In fact, listen to what Jesus said. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. There's a lending that he presupposes. Then in Matthew 25, remember the parable of the talents that Jesus gives? And he talks about the master commending his two servants for taking and investing the money, the talents, and making more out of it so that when he comes, he'll have more. And he rebukes the one guy who just buries the money in the ground. And so there is a borrowing, there is a lending that is going on. So it's not prohibited. Businesses could not exist unless they took out loans to get materials. Farmers need seed and fertilizer, and so they take out loans. And we couldn't buy homes, most of us, unless we had a mortgage. And that's okay. It's not like, oh, you're sinning against God because you owe. Now, at the same time, it is prudent to pay off your debts as quickly as possible because monetary systems have a way, as we know from many years ago, collapsing overnight. 
And so it's good to just retire debt and not live according to debt. Of course, our society is built, unfortunately, on credit and on debt. And it seems like the more you owe, the more you can borrow, and that's unfortunate as well. But the whole concept of borrowing and lending is not to be um, thrown out altogether. What does this mean then? Owe no man anything. It means don't incur debt you are unable to pay. That's what it means. And when you're incurring the debt, if you know, I'm going to take out this loan, but I know I'm not going to be able to pay it, that's what it's speaking about. It's wrong. If you can't meet your financial obligation, then don't go for it. And so many people stretch themselves out so thin, they, they overextend, they, they want more than they really should have at that time in their life or according to their earning power. And they stretch themselves too thin, they get into trouble, then they have to knock on doors or come to the church and can you help me out? And, and so don't incur debt you know you can't pay. Benjamin Franklin said, said creditors have better memories than borrowers. They'll come after you. They have a way of reminding you and setting people on your track and hounding you, so better not even to incur the debt. Also, I found just from a personal standpoint in counseling people, one of the, one of the reasons, one of the top reasons marriages disintegrate is because of debt. It's usually not talked about. It's incurred through a process, but it's not discussed in the marriage relationship. It causes a wedge of communication. And uh, marriages often break up because of that. It's the never enough syndrome. I want more than I have. Or can't we just get this by taking out a second or a third or a fourth or a tenth or whatever. Just stretch ourselves out. And by the way, when the Bible speaks about greed, the word the Greek uses is to stretch yourself out to obtain something. It's not comfortable, but you're going to try to do it anyway. Of course, this starts when we're kids. It's part of the human nature. We have something, but it's not as cool as the thing that's on television. It's the new model. The new model's better than the old model. And so we're always trying to get the bigger toy or the latest model. And unfortunately, it doesn't end when we turn adolescents or teenagers or adults. It just kind of keeps on going. And so we have to be careful of that. Financial commitments reflect spiritual commitments. Did you know that? The kind of commitments that we make financially have an indication of the kind of commitments we have spiritually. Let me illustrate that with the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, he said, He who is faithful in what is least, and he'll refer to finances, is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, that's bucks, money, cash, who will commit to you trust in the true riches? So that the kind of commitments we make financially in this world, we make an honest, hopefully, commitment that should be paid when the bill comes due. It reflects the commitment that we have spiritually. Now, as a Christian, I think it's helpful to have a budget. I think it's helpful to follow a process. You get your paycheck. I think the first thing you ought to do is, before you think, how can I spend this? The first thing you should do is thank God you have it. Thanksgiving and praise. Thank you, Lord, for your provision, whether it's as much as you think you deserve or not. You're acknowledging that it comes from God. That's first. Second, the practice that I follow, the first check that I write goes to the Lord's work. first check I write goes to the church, then other mission organizations and missionaries that I support, tithes, offerings, love gifts, etc. I remove the Lord's portion from it. Third comes your needs. Food, rent, clothing, CDs, you know, all the bare essentials in life, just to get by. Fourth, after your needs, then pray. Again, Lord, how should I spend this? I'm looking at this. Is this okay? For, will this glorify you? Will this better my family? Etc. Know this. God promises to supply all your needs, not all your greeds. And there's a big difference. Do you really need that VCR? Is that a real need? I mean, can you wait a while? Well, I've got to have that Corvette. I mean, that's a real need. 
You'd be surprised what some people think a financial need is. Now, God will supply everything that you need. So that's the first part of it. Owe no one anything. That's the debt that can be fully paid. And when the bills come, do your best to pay it off. Now the debt that cannot be fully paid. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Did you know that love is an unpaid debt? What I mean by that is you never stop paying it off. You never stop loving. The NIV renders it, I think, a little more accurately in this particular verse. It says, Owe to no one anything except the continuing debt to love one another. You can never stop and say, Well, I've loved enough, thank you. I gave at the church. I gave at the office. It's something that is a continual, ongoing debt. The early church father Origen once said, The debt of love remains with us permanently and never leaves us. This is a debt which we pay every day and we forever owe. We're to love. Though we've already covered that in some of these verses, it's all throughout the Bible. Love is that preeminent Christian virtue, is it not? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. The problem is, some people are very lovable, and others are not. It's easy to love lovely people, people that love us back, people that are kind to us, people that respect us and respond nicely and sweetly to us. But what about those people that are the unlovely ones? They seem a little tougher to love, the irregular people, the people that get under our nerves. Yeah, I'll give you a little bit of love. Come on over. <laughs> this is where we have to fight human nature. Now, you might think that, okay, well, he's speaking about unbelievers when you talk about the unlovable people. It's easy to love people within the church. Oh, really? I beg to differ with you. We are sinners saved by grace. And by God's grace, we're changing. But if we fellowship long enough with each other and we really get to know each other really well, like go on a mission trip together or something, <laughs> interesting dynamics. Let's put it in perspective. Jesus quoted in Nazareth, Isaiah chapter 61. It's found in Luke chapter 4. He quoted it as referring to himself that he was fulfilling it. This is what he said. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Did you hear the description? Brokenhearted captives who are blind and oppressed. You get that group of people together, and it's messy. That's who we are. Brokenhearted, captive, blind, oppressed, sinners saved by grace. You put us all together, and it's sometimes very tough to love one another. But the idea here is this. Loving the believer, loving the non-believer, loving those who like the stuff we like, who don't like the stuff we like, those people whose personalities we enjoy, those people who we'd rather not be with, we're to love them all. In fact, in that verse, notice it says, love one another. Then it says a little further down, he who loves another. In English, it's the same word. In Greek, it's two different words. The first word is alas. The second word is heteros for one another. When it says love one another, it means another of the same kind, alas. You ought to love people who are like you. You say, well, that's easy. The next part's tougher. He who loves another, heteros, Another of a different kind. That's your neighbor. Sometimes your neighbor doesn't like what you like. Sometimes your neighbor doesn't like you. And lets you know he doesn't like you. They may have different customs, different backgrounds, different belief system. We're to love them all. Now, I do want to qualify this. I did not last time when we spoke about love. I just figured it was understood. But sometimes you have to just go over every aspect so that there will be no misunderstanding. When we speak of loving people, it is not a monolithic way. There are several ways to love. Love is manifested in many different aspects. Sometimes it's a gentle encouragement. It's an arm around the shoulder. At other times, love is shown by a strong rebuke, a reproof. It's confrontive. It's tough love. Parents know this. Sometimes parents give gifts to their children. That shows their love. 
Sometimes parents spank their children. You know what? That shows love too. Now, kids don't think so. You don't love me anymore. Why? Because you spank me. Well, one day they'll say, thank you for loving me enough to spank me. It's funny how Christians sometimes act like kids. If you rebuke them, you don't love me. There's no love around here. Right. Great. Wham. And so when we speak of love, know that love manifests itself in many different ways. And the Bible even encourages us to confront sin, and that would be love. One of the most loving things you can do to a person is to tell them the truth. Of course, you should speak the truth in love, in a very loving manner, but sometimes it's confronted. It goes on to say in this verse, For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love is the principle that undergirds the law. It's not just thou shalt not. But if you think of all the thou shalt, thou shalt love, you're going to cover all the thou shalt nots. You're not going to even do them. And so Jesus and Paul and others speak of the fact that love fulfills all of the commandments, all of the love, all of the, uh, the law. For the commandments, verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, they're all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When the law was given in the Old Testament, to some it sounds austere, restrictive. God comes down and says, thou shalt not. And we go, ooh, all these negatives. Those negatives are giving, given for a giant positive because God loves you and God wants you to love others. And so if you show love to each other, you won't be committing adultery, you won't be killing people, you won't be stealing from them, you fulfill the law. Remember last week I talked about the fact that when I was a kid I was pulled over a couple times by policemen and how that even now if I'm driving down the street and I see a police car I'll kind of clutch the steering wheel and look down to see the speedometer. It's, it's just, you know, it's conditioned response at this point. That's because I grew up seeing the laws of the land as negative instead of positive. It says, 35 miles an hour. Thou shalt not go over that. But that law was put in order not just to restrict me, but to enable me. It's saying, in a sense, you can get to your destination. You just have to drive safely. And because there are others on the road that seek to go to perhaps the same destination, because you want to show regard for them, you want to demonstrate your love for them, you don't drive out of control. That's what the law is for, to enable love for those who are using the same system. So love then fulfills the law. And he quotes some of the commandments in verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. He's referring in these verses, of course, to the second half of the law, or the second tablet of the law, the second six commandments. The first of the Ten Commandments, the first few of them deal with our relationship to God. The second part of the law, the second tablet, as it's called, focuses on our relationship with other people. And so they're mentioned here, and love fulfills all of them. Now, if you just notice certain of the things that are mentioned in verse 9, the sins that the Ten Commandments mention harm people. If you commit adultery, you harm them. You are stealing somebody's honor from them. You're ruining their home. If you murder someone, you're harming them. You're taking their life. If you covet or if you bear false witness, you're hurting their name. You're harming their reputation. So that love fulfills the law because it seeks no harm for the other person. Now, Jesus also summed up the law in two commandments. This is the text, Matthew 22. They come to him and they say, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus beautifully reduces ten commandments to two commandments. Commandment number one, love God with everything that is in you. If you do that, you're not going to take his name in vain. You're going to keep his Sabbath holy. You're going to honor him above all others. 
And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to want to harm them. So on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said sort of the same thing regarding the second tablet of the law when he gave the golden rule. He said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So Paul makes it easy. Don't owe anybody anything, but just love people. You can never pay off that debt. In fact, if you just remember this concerning them, love your neighbor as yourself. You'll be all right. Makes it easy. Er. To do it isn't that easy. It's tough. But it's easier to remember two commandments than all ten. Simplifies it by boiling them down. Now, I want to focus on something. What does it mean when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself? Now, I know it sounds pretty obvious, but you would be surprised of how many people like to twist that scripture, I think, twist it. Loving God is the greatest commandment. He said that's the first and the great commandment. The second commandment that sums up the second tablet of law is you love your neighbor as yourself. But there are people who say, well, you can't obey those two commandments until you love yourself. You've got to love yourself first, which enables you to love God and love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you've got to really love yourself. And once you love yourself, only then are you able to love other people. That is a misinterpretation of it. But let me, let me quote to you somebody who said that. One author, I'll keep him unnamed. Self-love is the prerequisite and the criterion for our conduct towards our neighbor. Without self-love, there can be no love for others. You cannot love your neighbor, you cannot love God, unless you first love yourself. Now to the unsuspecting, go, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Another author says, our ability to love God and to love our neighbor is limited by our ability to love ourselves. We cannot love God more than we love our neighbor. We cannot love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. What's wrong with that? You're making three commandments out of two. That's what's wrong with it. First commandment is love God with everything. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. They've just said there's a third commandment. Love yourself first, then love God, then love your neighbor. Did you know there's no commandment in the Bible to love yourself? None. It's never found. In fact, The Bible simply presupposes you already do. That's what the text means. Love your neighbor as you already are loving yourself is the literal translation. Jesus, when he said that, didn't say, now you have to withdraw from society and get lots of therapy to learn how to get self-esteem and love yourself, then you'll be okay, then you can... No! He's saying, because you're a human being, you are so in love with yourself. Now love others like that. He presupposes we already have that love. And he's right, of course. Paul the Apostle, along the same lines, presupposes self-love when he speaks about husbands loving their wives. This is how he puts it, Ephesians 5. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Okay, you get up in the morning, you comb your hair, you make sure you look spiffy, you have nice clothes to wear, etc. You make your flesh, well, we try to do whatever we can with it. Because we have self-love, therefore we should love others as we love ourselves. Be concerned about their needs, care for them, nourish them. Wanting them to be fed, cared for, etc. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, now let's go down to verse 11. This is the incentive for all this. And do this knowing the time that now it's high time to awake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It is high time. Or perhaps it's better to put it this way. It is the strategic time. It is a critical time. And one of Paul's favorite ways... To get people motivated is to talk about the return of Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring when he says your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. He wants us to know the time. For the Christian, 
the coming of the Lord should not take us by surprise. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to time it down to the very day or minute. No man knows the day or the hour. And I guess in one sense, it'll be a surprise, though we expect it. You know, we're going to be walking down the street, and it's like, boom, Lord, hi. (laughs) That's how the rapture of the church, of course, will happen. Not that there's any guarantee that it will be in our lifetime, though it could. And we should be expecting it, waiting for it. But the incentive that Paul often uses is that the Lord would return soon at any moment, and we should be anticipating it. We should be watching, Paul said. Be ready. Jesus said, watch and be ready. And the Bible gives us certain signs, and we've spent many, many sessions talking about those signs and the fulfillment of them and how I think that we're seeing many of them fulfilled already before our eyes. But the second coming of Christ, excuse me, the return of the Lord for us, is something that should not catch us off guard. Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians, and he said, You are not children of darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. We should be aware that he is coming. And one of the greatest incentives to being debt-free, one of the greatest incentives for paying our taxes and being above board and loving our neighbor as ourself is that Jesus Christ is coming soon. There is nothing more purifying than to realize he could come at any moment. Any moment he could show up, the trumpet could sound, and we'd be in the presence of the Lord. Now that does something to a person when he believes that. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 John for just a moment. Turn right, go down a few blocks. 1 John chapter 3. Let's read three verses together. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, he is revealed in his glory when he comes, that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone, notice this, who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. John's point needs to be taken. The coming of the Lord isn't just a theological idea that we discuss in seminary. It is a very practical, motivating factor that purifies us. You know, if I really believe in the hope of the coming of Christ, that he could come at any time, if I believe that when he comes there's going to be a reward for the church, for those who have faithfully served him. If I believe in the judgment seat of Christ, all of that is going to purify my life, right? Now, I've heard people say, oh, you Christians that speak about the rapture of the church and the soon return of Jesus, all it does is make you lazy. You're just waiting for Jesus to come and fix everything so he can just bail you out. Au contraire. Just the opposite. Everyone who has this hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ for the church, purifies himself even as he is pure. When I was a boy, I used to do certain things around the house that irritated my mom. And uh, she would put up with it, and she could handle it pretty well, but sometimes I'd get just a little too feisty. And so she had a, a simple little phrase that would just quickly set me in order. She'd say, your father will be home soon. And I'll tell you what, that quelled a lot of rebellion. Dad's coming home soon. Now, I loved my father. I loved when he came home. I especially loved when he came home and spent time with us. And so there was this healthy love and respect, and I better live right because my father will be home soon. When I hear the words, Jesus is coming soon, I am thrilled because I'm going to be with him forever, but also I want to live right right now. It's a holy incentive to godly living. Like the soldier who was in the war, and the soldiers often are a little bit looser when they're away from home and in the company of buddies who are loose. This one soldier was very unlike the rest. He, he was pure. He didn't mess around. He didn't drink, didn't go to the bars, didn't do anything. One of his buddies said, why? 
Why are you so pure? How can you live such a, a clean life? He said, well, back home I have a girlfriend. And I love her so much. And after the war, I'm going to ask her to marry me. And so I want to save myself for that young lady. And it was the thought of getting together that soon return of the soldier for war that, that kept him living a holy life. Notice the end of that verse. For our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Don't let that verse confuse you. Salvation doesn't mean the salvation you enjoy now. In the Bible, there are three different usages of the idea of salvation. There's salvation in the present tense, salvation in the past tense, and salvation in the future tense. If you have come to Christ, if you've asked Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, you have been saved, past tense. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things become new. You pass from death into life. The second idea of salvation is in the present tense. You are being saved from sin's power, grip on your life. That's sanctification. We've already discussed it at length, I think, in Romans. So we're being saved from sin's grip in the present tense or power. But there's a third aspect. In the future, we'll, we will be saved from the very presence of sin altogether. It's this future aspect, this culmination of our salvation. When Jesus returns for the church, that he's speaking about. Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Now, listen, Paul wrote that about 2,000 years ago. We can say this with more fervency today even than he could. 2,000 years ago, he said, your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. And of course, we have no idea exactly when Jesus Christ is coming back. But I think it's safe to say from looking all around at the world that that is very, very soon. I'm anticipating it. The early church anticipated any, any natural reading of the New Testament will yield the fact that the early church all believed in the imminent return of Christ. They all looked for it. Paul told them to wait for it. Eagerly await from heaven his coming. Looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. But we have some of the signs fulfilled in our generation that weren't even fulfilled in that generation. We have the return and the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. We have the reestablishment of the old Roman Empire into the common market. We have the rise of the Soviet powers, etc., etc. And all these things line up and tell us Jesus Christ is coming soon. It's nearer than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. This is the language of getting up in the morning. Night's over. It's daytime. Throw off the garments of the night. Put on the armor of the day. And Paul is borrowing from uh, the Roman soldiers who in the morning would cast off their evening gar or their night garments that they covered them at night, their blankets, so to speak, put on their shield, get their sword, put on their armor, and go out to fight. The garments of darkness that this verse speaks of, it speaks of the darkness of this world or the ways of this world. Now, we each know what those things are in our individual lives. There are certain things that have been habits a long time, They've been encumbrances. They've been hindrances. We know what they are. Our salvation is now nearer than when we first believe. Identify what those things are. Cast them off and put on the armor of light. Same language or the same idea is used in Hebrews chapter 12 when the writer of Hebrews, instead of using the metaphor of the soldier fighting the battle, as we see here, speaks of the metaphor of the athlete. He writes these words, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Certain things can get in the way of an athlete running the race. When I was in California, I saw this thing called a Nike World. It's a huge, cool store. 
for uh, athletics. And they had this uh, several running outfits, and one was a running jacket. I'd never seen a running jacket. It was sort of like a long coat, a warm-up. It was beautiful. It was a fashion statement. But that wouldn't help you if you're running a race. You don't put on that thing that goes down past your knees just to make a fashion statement when you're out running a race. You want it off. You want to cast off anything that would slow you down. And if you're a soldier, you want to cast anything off that would keep you from fighting and winning the battle. Cast it off. Put on the armor of light. So you should ask yourself tonight, is there a hindrance that you know about that's keeping you from having the freedom to fight the good fight, to run the race with endurance? Could it be a debt, as we read about tonight? Could it be a pursuit in your life? Could it be an association holding you back? You don't have the freedom to run like you should. Cast off the works of darkness. Wilbur Chapman said, My life is governed by this rule. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me, and I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. It's a great quote, and I've mused over it many, many times. What is in my life that's dimming my vision of Jesus? It's taking away my hunger to read his word, to pray. Remember Paul in Corinthians said, All things are lawful for me. I, I can do anything I want, except not all things are expedient. Not everything moves me toward my desired goal. And if it doesn't help me reach my goal in Christ, I don't need it. It's lawful for me, but it's not expedient. It's okay if I had it. it it's nothing wrong in and of itself, but it's not helping me. In fact, it's hindering me. Get rid of it. Release it. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Of course, we know that darkness in the scripture is something that speaks of sin, ignorance, apathy. Night's over. We've been saved out of that. We're in the light. Ephesians chapter 5, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Peter said, God called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. So that's the idea here. Night is past. You once lived in the darkness. Get out of those behavior patterns that were dark. Live in the light. Notice the list of six sins. Let's run through them briefly. Revelry is first on the list. This, interestingly enough, originally meant a group of people who accompanied a winning team on their way home. They would go to the Olympics. The team would win, and others would come around to join the festivities. There would be revelry, singing, celebration. The word degenerated and came to mean noisy troublemakers. Do you have any noisy troublemakers in your neighborhood? You say, yeah, I used to be one. Well, that's okay if you used to be one, but not anymore. If you're in the light, that's what you used to do. Not in revelry, noisy troublemaking. Drunkenness. Epicureanism was big in those days. Ancient Greeks believed, the Epicureans believed, at least in the pursuit of pleasure, whatever it would take. And so the, the behavior of debauchery was often drunkenness. Lewdness, or as the old King James puts it, licentiousness. This is immorality, sexual immorality, a typical heathen sin. These are things that once marked us, common in the Greek world. In fact, in Corinth, we'll get to it when we get to Corinthians, there was a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, and part of the worship system for Aphrodite was a thousand priestesses slash prostitutes who would go out into the city, bring men into worship services, take their money and give it to the temple. And that was known as licentiousness in Paul's writings, or lewdness as it's put here. Lust or lewdness, depending on which translation you have, this is a deliberate open display of profanity, not caring who sees it, not caring who's there to hear it, an open display of wickedness or profanity. You know what? That's Hollywood. That's a lot of songwriting that is out there today. 
open, profane. Let's push the envelope. Let's see how far we can get. Let's numb people's sensitivities to it. And that would describe lust or lewdness. Strife is next on the list. This means a desire for prestige or position, wanting to be noticed. Often in certain groups, certain churches, assemblies, if you give a certain amount of money or you perform some great feat, they dedicate a wing, they'll put a plaque up, your name, how much you donated, what great feat you did. And we have always felt that the Lord will give you the reward. Rather than us bringing you up and saying, now everybody give a big hand to this person who's given this amount of money or done this for the church. Hey, just do it as unto the Lord. Instead of striving to be noticed, striving for a position. If you're a servant of God, that stuff shouldn't matter. You do it as unto the Lord. And then envy. Of course, envy is being jealous of somebody who does have a position. You're envious because you're not blessed like you think you should be. Others are blessed. And that can cause envy. But, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Set your sights on Jesus Christ. What's your goal in life? It should be to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's my goal. Now, I'll admit I'm not. I've got a long way to go. There's a lot of molding that has to go on. But I want to set my sights toward Jesus Christ and let him finish his work in me. Paul wrote to the Galatians, My little children, listen to this, For whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Set your sights. Get up every morning and set your sights. Lord, I'm putting off these old garments. That's not me anymore. I've been saved from that. I'm putting on Christ. Mold me and shape me into your image. Put on the armor of God, as outlined in the New Testament. The shield of faith. Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Put around yourself the belt of truth. Live in those principles. I found something by Ray Stedman in his commentary I wanted to share with you on these verses. When I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be a part of me all day long, to go where I go, to do what I do. They cover me and make me presentable to others. This is the purpose of clothing. In the same way, the Apostle Paul is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up every morning. Make him a part of your life that day. Intend that he goes with you wherever you go and that he acts through you in everything that you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. How differently we might live. If before we went into some place or had some conversation, we invited Jesus to be a part of it. We'd say, oh, I don't think Jesus would like to be a part of it. That's the point. Clothe yourself with him. Let him be a part of your very existence. You get up in the morning, put on your Christian clothing, the armor of light. And notice how it closes out this chapter. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. I know something about myself. I know that my heart is deceitful above all else. It's wicked. I believe what Paul the Apostle said about himself. I believe it in my own self. I know that in me that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. I believe that. I don't argue with it. I'm not trying to convince God that I've got a spark of wonderfulness about me that he should notice. In my flesh, there dwells no good thing. And I also know that because I still have an old nature... I'm vulnerable. There are areas of my life where I know if I get too close, it'll be dangerous. I could get pulled in. I'm not strong enough in certain areas. And you all know what those are in your own lives as well. Make no provision for the flesh means find the line of safety. Find the line of safety and mark it well. And then go way back from it. Don't even get close to it. Stand way behind it. Find out what your weaknesses are. Find out what your strengths are. Determine when you're healthy and what it's an unhealthy situation. And quit trying to see how close you can get to the line. 
You know, sometimes people will come up and say, Hey, preacher, do you think it's okay if I do this or that? Will I still be a Christian? And I say, no, wait a minute. That's not the way to approach that. Instead of saying, what can I get away with and still get to heaven? Why not questions like, how can I fully give my life over for the work of God? Instead of, well, I want to get to heaven, but just barely, you know, by the skin of my teeth. Salvation by grace, but I kind of want to just do what I want to do. Is that okay? Some Christians sail so close to the lake of fire, they get their sails singed. Find the line of safety and go way back and make no provision for the flesh. And we all know what that is. Some have the freedom to look at certain television programs, and uh, they can just look at it and it doesn't bother them. They see, simply get information from it. Others, it does something when they see it, shouldn't be done. Some people can walk uh, through a store where there's magazines, no problem. But others will walk by and they'll stop. And they'll get drawn to them and they'll start looking at certain magazines that are unhealthy. Find the line. And then don't go up to the line, just say, I'm not going to even get close to it. Make no provision for the flesh. There was a homeless boy that a couple found, and they brought this little boy home to their house. Kid had rags on. He hadn't had a bath in who knows how long. They brought him home, cleaned him up, scrubbed him up real good, bought him a brand new suit of clothes, and this kid had never seen stuff like this. He just looked at himself in the mirror and looked at the clothes and thought, man, these are beautiful. Then that night they said it's time for bed. They tucked him in bed with brand new pajamas. Never had them before. And then the woman taught him how to pray. The very simple childhood prayer that many of us grew up praying. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And she was trying to get him to pray it. And he heard it, but he was dozing off. And as he was dozing off, he said, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my clothes to keep. Amen. He didn't want to let go of those clothes. He'd never had such good-looking clothes in all of his life. Lord, please let me keep those clothes. You've been given new duds in Christ, new clothes, the armor of light, all of the resources of Christ at your disposal. Walk in them. Get up every morning. Get dressed in them. Live in them. Make no provision for the flesh.